Well, we are continuing our sermon series this week, Open My Eyes. We've been continuing through the Gospel of Mark, and what we tend to find is this similar pattern. Folks don't quite see as clearly as they think they do. And so we learn that we actually need our eyes open to what God is doing, and that the way to do that is to join Jesus on his walk to the cross. Well, this week when I was thinking about our passage for today, um, I thought about a quote that I see pop up on Facebook from time to time. It's from this theologian from a hundred or so years ago named G.K. Chesterton. Uh, And it goes like this. The Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. Rather, it has been difficult and left untried. What a great quote, right? I, I bet... That looks really great, superimposed on a picture of Chesterton looking really introspective. You know, this is the thing with quotes on the internet. Uh, I love, I do this, this is going to be shocking to you, but I'll see a quote on the internet and then I'm like, I wonder where that comes from. I wonder what book that's in. And it turns out that the book that this is in is a book called What's Wrong with the World? And you can get it for free on Project Gutenberg on the internet. And so I did. And so uh, maybe when I was procrastinating more than I should, decided to read some of this book. Not all of it, but you know enough of it. So what this quote is referring to uh, is he's talking about the transition from one form of Christianity to another. So sometimes when we think about cultural changes in the church, we think that one idea has run its course So like, for instance, he talks about the Protestant Reformation. And we think that it it came about because medieval Catholicism hadn't adjusted to the world around it. But what Chesterton says is that's not really what happened. My point is, he writes, that the world did not tire of the church's ideal, but of its reality. Monasteries were impugned not for the chastity of monks, but for the unchastity of monks. Christianity was unpopular not because of the humility, but of the arrogance of Christians. Certainly, if the church failed, it was largely through the churchmen. So that's what he means. Real Christianity has not been tried. It is wanted, always wanted by the world but so few people actually try to live it out. So what is this ideal form of Christianity? And I actually think the better question for all of us is, who is the person who most looks like Christ to you? The person who, when you think about what it means to be a Christian, you see them. I'm going to guess that it's not because of what they think or what they say or believe, but I'm going to guess, you can correct me if I'm wrong, that it's because they live their life for others. Because that's it, isn't it? Do you want to know what it means to follow Jesus? Well, it takes following Jesus on his path, living a life like his. So today we're going to hear a story from somebody who's trying to get it, but doesn't quite get it. 
So here now our passage from Mark chapter 10. As he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one but God is good. You know the commandments, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to them, teacher, I have kept all these since my youth. And Jesus looked at him, loved him and said, you lack one thing, sell what you own and give the money to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. When he heard this, he was shocked and went away grieving for he had many possessions. Then Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard will it be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God? And the disciples were perplexed at those words. But Jesus said to them again, children, how hard is it to enter the kingdom of God? It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. They were greatly astounded and said to one another, then who can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, for mortals it is impossible, but for God, for God all things are possible. So Peter began to say to him, look, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, truly I tell you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for my sake and for the sake of the good news who will not receive a hundredfold now in this age, houses, brothers and sisters, mothers and children and fields with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are the first will be the last and the last will be the first. May God bless this reading. All right, I feel for this guy who is coming to Jesus. Um, This man is presented as having some wealth. In the other gospels, he's referred to as a ruler or as a rich young man. Uh, Neither of those statements is in Mark. This is just a guy who has some possessions. Uh, But clearly, Jesus has touched a nerve. Uh, This man does not want to do what Jesus tells him. It is too much for him to do. And so it is not that the gospel has been tried and found wanting. It is that it has been wanted and left untried. And so when I think about this entire interchange, I see the man's question exactly, I see in the man's question exactly what is challenging about the gospel. Because this is a guy, I'm guessing, who gets what he wants. Like this is not a guy who is used to to being told no. He succeeds more often than he fails. And he has all of the receipts to prove it. So when he asks Jesus the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What he wants to know is, how can I get what I want? How can I get what I want? What rules do I need to follow? What tasks do I need to be able to complete 
so that I can get what it is that I desire. And Jesus basically quotes from the Torah, follow the law, you know what all of that is. But then the stakes get higher. Sell everything you own, give the money to the poor, then come and follow me. And this is the nerve. Everything you've earned, everything you think is yours due to hard work, everything that you celebrate as signs of your own success, give all that up. Let go of it. The thing that you think makes you you, that's what you have to leave behind. The disciples are amazed by this. You almost wonder if they're like, hey, Jesus, can you soften this a little bit? And then he doubles down. Don't you hate it when he does that? How difficult is it for someone with wealth to enter into the kingdom of God? It is more difficult than a camel fitting through the eye of a needle. You know, if you've heard a sermon on this before, you've probably heard some of the explanations about the eye of the needle being a gate in Jerusalem. I'm going to tell you from the best scholars in the world, it's not. Uh, Jesus literally means a camel going through a needle because this metaphor exists in other cultures. We know that. We should take Jesus's word. You have to give up what is most important to you in order to grasp the eternal life of the kingdom. And how do we know that? Because this entire gospel is heading in the direction of the cross. You know, the disciples want to deny that Jesus will die, that his life will be given up for the sake of the world. But y'all, we know it's what happens. We know it. And Jesus is calling them and calling us to follow, to pick up our own cross and join him on the journey. If that's the case, then of course Jesus wants this guy to sell everything. Because the message of the gospel is that transformation comes when we give up what we think is most important to who we are and instead live for the sake of others, to live for the sake of the gospel. There's a commentary I read uh, most weeks. It it comes from what's a website called Working Preacher. And honestly, it was so good this week that I, rather than try to parse it for you, I just want to read part of it. It comes from a guy named Claudio Carvales. And he writes about this call as a leap of faith. This is what he says. But how difficult a leap of faith is. It is often too much to handle. In order to go to that place, we need to leave that which holds us. We have to let what holds us die, and then we must fall. Only a sense of death can open up the possibility of transformation, the reinvention of ourselves. Without the sense of death, we will never move. To be reinvented, we need to face death and allow the new to spring forth and make us anew. Okay, I'm not, I don't want to do this right? You hear these stories and what he is saying and letting go is, 
difficult. But it's part of why this scripture of this young, wealthy man is one of my favorites because of how difficult it is, because it actually challenges me, because I actually have to stop and think, what, I don't own a ton of property, I'm not a landholder like he is described as being, and yet there are things that I hold on to and don't want to let go of. I have things that, though they are superficial, are important to me, things I don't want to give up things in me that I don't necessarily want to die because what if there's nothing left behind it? And here's Jesus calling us, let it go. Carvalis continues, the rich man would have to experience that change as a free fall until now reinventing himself within the group of Jesus, he would turn the sense of falling to a sense of flying. And that's the thing, the gospel doesn't call us to controlled, realizable expectations. It calls us into the unknown, where it promises that if we let go of ourselves, we will find something. It feels like falling. Carvalis continues, what Jesus proposes to this man is what Jesus is proposing to all of us. The gospel is much less about what we think it is and much more about what we are unwilling to do. If the gospel is indeed about giving up our riches, we are all very far from being a Christian. We must continue pushing our own spiritual and material limits until we are able to detach our hearts from our possessions and turn ourselves to a simple way of living for the sake of others and God. So what does this look like? The simple way of living for the sake of others and God. You know, I don't know if there even is a complete version of this. There are people who for moments live like this. And my experience is the folks who we think live like this, if you were to ask them, they'd be like, no, I'm selfish. I don't, don't live into it the way I ought to. But there are these folks we know these moments when folks have their lives directed at a greater purpose, at the purpose of loving others and of serving a merciful and compassionate God. Folks who do live for the sake. You know, I have this memory that comes up from time to time when I think about folks in my life who have done this, who give up what, what is theirs in order to serve and love others. And when I was in college, I was part of several campus ministries. And the pastors of those memory of those ministries became really important in my own story. And one of them in particular really pushed me towards ministry. Um, Kathleen to this day is still what I think about when I think about someone living a Christian life. Um, and one of the ways I know that she's this person is that she would hate that I'm even talking about her in this sermon today. And you know, it wasn't that she was perfect or that she claimed to be perfect. But it was that she had this way of doing things for other people. And I mean going out of her way to help and serve others. And I still remember this story. I was probably a junior or a senior in college. And I was a, remember hearing the story of a freshman who was part of our campus ministry. Uh, and he was having trouble with snow. 
So here's the thing. Uh, I went to school in Flagstaff, Arizona, and people go, snow in Arizona? Um, Flagstaff doesn't get a little bit of snow. It gets a lot of snow. The first snowfall my freshman year was 36 inches in about 36 hours. Uh, it is a skiing town. It gets a lot of snow. And so this student had moved to Flagstaff from Houston, Texas. Uh, Houston, when they get snow, it's never measured much more than inches, maybe even smaller increments than inches. I know it does snow sometimes in Houston, but not 36 inches, right? And he was having trouble getting his car into the parking lot of his dorm. It's like 9 o'clock on a Saturday night. He's a freshman in a town a thousand miles from where his family is. What does he do? So he called Kathleen. And Kathleen, without thinking twice, grabbed Mickey, her then fiance, now husband, and headed down to the dorm, and the three of them got his car unstuck. And I know it, this sounds so minor, right, of an event. But this is just one of many of the, student, of the stories I know of Kathleen selflessly helping students. She would go out of her way. She insisted on there being dinner whenever we met for worship. And she insisted that she cooked it. She once told me that she worked um, at a remedial school for students in Flagstaff. That was her, her part-time job. Students who did not do well in the school. And she told me the story once about how whenever somebody had a birthday, she would bake a cake for them for these students. And these were rough students. These were students who were coming out of, of juvenile detention. And she said that she insisted that she serve them the cake, that she take the spatula and put it in the pan and put it on the plate and give it to the students. And her people she worked with would tell her, don't do things for these students. They need to learn to be self-sufficient. And she said without, without missing a beat. No, nobody does anything for these kids. These kids are treated like they're trouble from the moment they wake up to the moment they go to bed. I'm going to make them feel like they are worthy of being served. And that's just the kind of person that she was. She gave in self-sacrifice. She gave in love. So I know that this sounds minor, this giving of her time and her energy and her spirit. And I still think, sometimes we think that being a follower of Christ is about major acts and shows of love. But sometimes it's just as simple as living it, as giving in self-sacrifice, as giving our lives to God, as simple as following on the path towards the cross with Jesus. And I think when we start out, we don't see how this can lead to any kind of new life. I mean, in order for Kathleen to decide to leave her warm home on a snowy evening, she had to give up some comfort. You have to be willing to do a little bit of work. But what if the result of that is something that while we can't always see it in the moment, is actually greater than we know? For instance, Imagine a person that you help guide into ministry is nearly 20 years later talking about the impact you had on their life. And imagine they're talking to their congregation about your example. I mean, talk about ripples in a pond. 
this is the thing. I, I don't think Kathleen went out that Saturday night because she thought she would have some major impact in the world. She did it because in that moment, she saw someone, a young person, a student who felt lost and alone, who needed someone to show up. And so she showed up. You know, Mahatma Gandhi was once asked about Christianity, and he very famously said, I like your Christ, I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. I wonder how much it's because we are called to give something up to follow, to give something up that keeps us from joining Christ on his path without the promise that it will be immediately worth it. You know, when Peter says that they have given up everything, Jesus tells his followers they will receive much. But I can't help but notice in that line of things that they will gain is houses, brothers and sisters, mothers and children and fields. The line ends with persecutions. Because to follow Jesus in this life is to take a risk, to give up what's most important to you in order to follow and that's not always a safe way. It requires some faith in something beyond ourselves, something which we don't quite get at first, something which we will only get when our lives have become about the journey with Jesus that leads to the cross. Because this path sometimes looks like death. It sometimes looks like selling everything you own and giving it away. Does anybody have a financial advisor that recommends that as a strategy for the future? Sometimes it looks like the last place we'd like to go. It looks like the place reserved for the least of these, the place you only get if you made a mistake along the way. But we know better. At least we think we do. The way to the cross, the way of self-sacrifice, the way of living for others and for God is not a dead-end street. In fact, it is the way to life. But as we're learning in this series, you only learn that if you're willing to follow Jesus there. Let us pray. Well, holy and gracious God, we pray for the ways in which you are calling us to service. For those things that you are calling us to give up, for those things that you are calling us to let go of, we pray today that you might empower us, embolden us, fill us with your spirit, so that we might in all things be your servants. That we might let go of that which holds us back individually and collectively. That we might become proclaimers of your kingdom and good news. We pray this in your name.